Let's pray. Our Father, we do rejoice that though the battle rages, both within our hearts and without in our world, that the victory's been won. Lord, the skirmishes come and the skirmishes go. But you have given us victory. Victory for all who will believe in you, the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, as we open your word this morning, we ask that you would give us a group of people gathered together made up of individuals. Lord, that you would give us ability. You would give us desire to hear and understand. Lord, that you would... uh, Guard my thoughts and words, knowing that you govern every moment of our lives, and in particular these this morning. Father, I pray that you would have your way with each one of us. Father, that you would keep us from uh, Phariseeism, judgmental spirit. You'd keep us from apathy, from indifference. Lord, build in us By your spirit, a deep, uh, heartfelt care and concern to bring honor to your name, to encourage one another, and Lord, to be light and salt in the world in which we live that those who have not come to see Christ in his glory, those who are not rejoicing in the victory that's been won. Lord, if we don't tell them who will. We pray for our youth and the sponsors at camp. Most likely gathering This morning also. Lord, we think of testimonies we've heard in the past of life-transforming experiences. 
We pray you would save our youth who are not saved. We pray, Lord, this this weekend, these few days would buttress the faith of those who already have experienced salvation. Lord, that you would give our sponsors, the, the, the men and women who are there overseeing their uh, flock, that you would give them wisdom and discernment. Father, we thank you for what you're doing. That you're not done yet with your people. So as you uh, tarry in sending your son, that we might be busy. In Jesus' name we ask these things for your glory. Amen. Well, I don't know if you paid attention. or I know you're paying attention. I don't mean it. I don't know how much attention you're paying that um, Andy did not read verses 31 to 35, which I did not finish last week. And I had said that we would finish that this week, but we'll finish that next week. We have two testimonies. We have two baptisms next week. We have the Lord's Supper. So a shorter passage would work much better with the service next week. So I have put off verses 31 through 35 until next week. And we'll do it together with the Lord's Supper and the uh, conversion testimonies of two young men. Uh, And we look forward to that so much. So we are picking up at uh, 36, this story of uh, the sinful woman forgiven. And then I have a little purpose at the end uh, for these, the three verses in chapter 8. Um, as I was studying this week, a verse was brought to mind that was big for uh, us in the 70s. And it was, he who wins souls is wise. That was in the 70s, Proverbs 11.30. That was my King James memory verse. At some point in time, we, li- we did our best to live that. Proverbs 11.30 in, in New American says, He who is wise wins souls. The reason I thought about that is I was reading an essay from F.W. Borm, one of my favorite little devotional uh, essayists. And uh, he said this, the dominant ambition of the church is to make Christ supreme in the life of the world. To make Christ supreme in the life of the world. That's the, he says, the dominant ambition of God's people. Uh, As we've been going through Luke, I'm going to go back and walk through just a couple of verses on the way. Luke is creating this picture of the ministry of Jesus. Uh, In chapter 5, verse 1, you can turn or you don't have to. I'm going to walk 
our, walk us up to our passage. On one occasion, the crowd was pressing in on him to hear the word of God. So there it is, the, uh, Jesus is ministering. He's preached in Nazareth at the synagogue. They've chased him out of town in Nazareth. He went to Capernaum. They've set up headquarters, and now he's going around the area preaching and healing and casting out evil spirits. And the crowd is building. The crowd was pressing in upon him to hear the word of God. Then uh, verse 15 of chapter 5. But now even more the report about him went abroad and great crowds gathered to hear him and to be healed of their infirmities. Uh, Chapter 6 verse 17. And he came down with them and stood on a level place, uh, having uh, chosen his 12 apostles, with a great crowd of his disciples, a great crowd of his disciples and a great multitude of people from all Judea, Jerusalem, and the seacoast of Tyre and Sidon who came to hear him and be healed. So you see what Luke is doing as he is laying out these, the crowd is... Or, Crowds are building. They've come to, yes, to see some miracles, but also to hear uh, the Word of God. Uh, Chapter 7, verse 9. When Jesus heard these things uh, about the centurion, he marveled at him. And turning to the crowd that followed him said, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. Verse 11, soon afterward he went to a town called Nain and his disciples and a great crowd went with them. What we'll see as we go through is it won't be long and the crowds will begin to thin. They'll begin to get smaller as they get a clearer picture of who it is that the Lord Jesus says, claims to be, and what his message is. But now the crowd is uh, great. Uh, Verse 24, when John's messengers had gone, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John, and he tells them about who John really is. So, uh, the, the crowd is gathering. The crowd has gathered. But the thing about a crowd is a crowd never really changes anybody or anything. A crowd is typically indifferent, apathetic, curious. This crowd is for sure curious. Uh, it represents these crowds that are, this multitudes that are following Jesus represents the world into which we are sent. Um, to take the gospel. Uh, The word is spreading. The news about Jesus is going through the countryside and the crowds are gathering. So the question would be, who's in the crowd? Who is this that makes up, that is made up of individuals just like here? We have a congregation here this morning, a gathering. And yet it's, There's no gathering without individual people coming together. 
So some in this crowd here would, uh, would, would have responded in faith and repentance to what they've heard and what they've seen, and they're just continuing to follow to learn the message of the Lord Jesus, embracing his offer of love, of forgiveness. But again, not all uh, are uh, responding in that way. So in our story about this woman, the question arises, when was she converted? Um, is this story about her conversion? Or is this story about her and her response to having been converted previously? And we have to say that is the point of the story. Uh, If... if, uh, If she was saved because of what she did here, our gospel is turned upside down. Uh, Turning everything that we know of about grace on its ear. We'll walk through this passage and show that, hopefully, but... Her love is an expression of her awareness of what Jesus has already done for her and to her. So was she converted in Nazareth, maybe, at that synagogue when he preached the first time in his hometown? Was she saved during the Sermon on the Plain? Was she, was she at the funeral that Jesus raised the young man uh, for, his widow, for his widowed mom? Uh, But at some point, this sinful woman recognized that Jesus was the one who could pull her up out of the miry clay of her sinful life. And she cried out and found the joy of being cleansed from her sin. So the crowd can be most affected by a few passionate believers like this woman. You may wonder what's the, what's the front of the bulletin about. Well, uh, the yellow umbrella is my picture, my view, uh, picture of the woman at the dinner party. Other than the Lord Jesus, of course. But... Uh, so let's look through this. There's the, this a, a dinner party. Verse 36, one of the Pharisees asked Jesus to come eat with them. There's a dinner party. Uh, he's invited uh, to come. And this dinner party will be interrupted by this woman. But, I mean, just to start, why would a Pharisee who... Uh, his party has really already become come at odd, become at odds with Jesus, uh, and Jesus knows that, and yet he accepts the the uh, 
uh, invitation, even though all these, pre- these previous contacts have led to strong opposition. So he sits at the table, verse 36 tells us, and he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at his table. And then uh, Luke has used this word more than once, but, uh, and behold, uh, my notes say, whoa, this woman shows up. Uh, uh, look, see, this, this word is just an exclamation of, yee, something's going on. Uh, this large house, this man is a Pharisee, so he's probably well off. Typically, the houses would, would, be, would have a large house, but it would have a courtyard. It would have walls around the courtyard. And uh, if the weather was nice, they would typically eat uh, outside. And uh, when a special guest, Jesus would probably be considered a special guest. When a special guest was there, they would kind of open the gates to the walls and neighbors and people would just kind of wander in through the courtyard while the dinner uh, party was sitting at the table or not sitting as you know reclining at the table Uh, it was customary for them to come and wander in and wander out people from the community those who were not invited even just total strangers just kind of uh Seizing the opportunity to go and see what's happening. Uh, Which explains verse 37. Behold the woman of the city who was a sinner. When she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house. Brought an alabaster flask of ointment. That explains how she got there. She had a past. Um, You got a past? You know, I've thought about this since, uh, I, I was, again, I was thinking this week. There's one person here who knew me in my past. Many of you have heard my pat, my testimony of my past. But we all have a past, don't we? This woman's got a past. And the city knew it. A woman of the city who was a sinner. Verse 30, now look at verse 39. Now the Pharisee who invited him, Jesus, saw this. He said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him for Jesus. The man knew it. She was a well-known sinner. Luke is very careful... Well, I say very careful. Luke doesn't, even, doesn't want us to even speculate, I don't think, about what kind of sinfulness she was involved in. We can imagine all kinds of things, but Luke doesn't identify her sin. When Jesus tells the parable in a second, in, in a few verses down, you'll see that it's irrelevant what her sin was. We'll explain and see that. But... Uh, hospitality that it was in the first century, uh, common courtesy would demand of the host a few things when his guest arrives. He would, Jesus would arrive, or whoever the guests were, they would arrive. Uh, typical uh, greeting would be to put the hand on one shoulder and kiss the guest on the cheek. 
arranged for the feet to be washed, refreshed with oil, whether on his head or his feet, but none of these have been done. Which begs the question, why would this Pharisee invite Jesus to his dinner party? Um, Verse 34 that we saw earlier. The Son of Man has come eating and drinking, and you say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Why would he bring Jesus, invite Jesus to this uh, dinner party? Maybe he wanted prestige. This man with a huge following is eating at my house. Invite his friends to come see that he kind of, who he knows. Um, It may be that uh, he's hoping to embarrass Jesus or expose his ways in front of the Pharisees and his friends. It's unusual to uh, not have fulfilled the proper etiquette. uh, And we we can infer from that verse uh, 39, if this man were a prophet, and that is very likely a response to verse 16, fear seized them all. When he raises the dead man at Nain, fear seized them all, and they glorified God, saying, a great prophet has risen among us. God has visited his people. Well, if this man was really a prophet, he would know who it was that was grabbing onto him. The word touch there is not just the normal word for touch, but it's, it's the word that they're, remember Mary, clinging to Jesus after he's resurrected. It's this idea of he would know what she's up to. He would know what she's doing, uh, this sinning woman. So he's most likely skeptical. I think at least we can infer that he's skeptical about who Jesus is. And they're reclining verse... Uh, 37 at the table Um, lying low the table's low Um, reading one of the commentaries the picture would be if we could look down upon them it would be like a pinwheel the the table might be circular and they're on benches with their feet sticking out and their feet are around this circle kind of which would give her access to his feet Uh, I have to take that one commentator's word. Somehow they're reclining on a bench on one elbow, eating with the other hand, and their feet are somewhere that's accessible to this woman as she's wandering around in the courtyard. And now her actions are going to be described. She brought an alabaster flask of ointment, which is not unusual, It would be a vial, a small vial of perfume or ointment, sometimes costly, sometimes not so costly. But it would be typical for a woman to have it around her neck. That's her purse. Is that your purse? Is that big enough to, can you wear your purse around your neck? But anyway, she had it, and so she had this... uh, alabaster flask of ointment and standing behind him verse 38 at his feet weeping she began to wet his feet with her tears 
and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. Um, so you kind of get the picture. She shows up, everything's going on. She's, she's a well-known sinner, at least to the city, uh, willing to face the stares and the sneers and uh, ridicule. She's got this alabaster vial of perfume. You know, we see more than one uh, anointing with the alabaster vial. That kind of explains it. They, that would be common. She's standing behind him at his feet, weeping uncontrollably, so much so that the tears begin to fall down on his feet. And she begins to do what Simon the Pharisee did not do. Uh, she takes over as the host, hostess, if you will, of the dinner party. No one brings a towel, so she does what is unthinkable in that society. She lets her hair down and wipes away the dirt and the tears from his feet um, she was kissing his feet anointing them with perfume if we were to, if, if you were to sit down and seriously read this you would see ten times either the word feet or them referring to feet Luke refers to Jesus' feet ten times in this one episode. It's a big deal. Here's what made me think of. How beautiful on the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news. And this woman is taking care of the feet of Jesus. Yes, Isaiah is speaking in more figurative terms. This lady is applying the figure, the picture that Isaiah gave her, and she is blessing the feet of Jesus. When the women encountered the resurrected Jesus, they came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. So, we have this scene, and she is crying, and she is letting her hair down. She's wiping and anointing his feet. Why was she crying in the first place? Uh, and again, presumably, maybe I'm presuming, and you know, it's funny how I wouldn't presume her sin, but I presume upon this. Sometimes we just have to take some inferences, and you take your inferences, and I'll take my inferences, and we'll figure out our best understanding of what's going on. But presumably, she's now in a position to do what she hoped to do ever since she'd been converted. Um, obviously, she's encountered Jesus before, um, and she wanted Jesus to know that she was amazed by his love for her. Uh, overwhelmed by the new life that grace had brought to her and the tears were the evidence that her guilt had been removed they're not uh, tears of repentance uh, they're tears of joy 
someone to ask her, what, why, why are you crying? She might say, my sins are gone. She might say, they're behind God's back. He puts them back there never to remember them against me again. They're cast into the depths of the sea. She doesn't know it, but they will be covered by the blood of Christ. And she knows her Messiah would take care of her sins. But the Pharisees never understand the cries of redeemed sinners. We'll see that to be true. The kisses were evidence of her adoration. Much like Mary, my soul magnifies the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God, my Savior, for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. So she was lost in wonder, adoration, in thanksgiving toward her Lord Jesus. So, there's the interruption to the feast, to the dinner party. And now Jesus is going to affirm, if you will, the interruption. Beginning in verse 39, Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. Uh, Do notice he didn't say that out loud to anybody. He said it to himself. Uh, And when Jesus tells the parable, it'll shed some light uh, that she is really expressing her gratitude, freed from the guilt of her sin, worshiping her Savior as Jesus pronounces forgiveness and her salvation. But Simon thinks to himself, Simon the Pharisee is thinking to himself, he is totally and completely unmoved by what this woman is doing. He's not bothered with her at all, at least what we have recorded. All he's concerned about, what he's focused on, is whether or not Jesus is a prophet. And he insinuates that if Jesus was a prophet, he would set the woman straight. If he was the person he claimed to be, he'd know who was grabbing him. And since Jesus didn't denounce her, Therefore, he's not a prophet. Uh, So what we see now is he's thinking Jesus doesn't understand when he's the one who doesn't understand. The Pharisees always think God loves good people, people who do nice things. They don't like Jesus because he seems to like sinners more than he does good people. Uh, They don't get the fact that heaven rejoices, Jesus rejoices over one lost sheep being found more than over 99 that never went astray. Pharisees are like the prodigal son's brother. 
right? He stayed home. The prodigal son's in the pig pen. The father's sitting on the porch, praying and wishing. The boy comes home and they throw a feast. And the son who stayed is mad, upset. He doesn't get it. Heaven rejoices over one sinner who is one rather than 99 good people who don't go bad. He thought Jesus should not have let her go on her way without at least, the the Pharisee, without at least uh, saying something to her So Jesus knows his thoughts. He's thinking. Jesus knows his thoughts. And so what Jesus does in these next few verses, he works to convince Simon. And I pictured it as a chess game. Uh, Not only does Jesus know what sort of woman she is, Jesus knows what sort of man Simon is. And he knows his thoughts. And so another uninvited guest, Jesus enters into the thoughts of Simon and has a conversation actually with Simon. And if I don't play chess, I don't have the patience to go to the second move or the third move. I can't look ahead what you're going to do next, and it's just very embarrassing. But I I know some of the language, um, you know. And so uh, Jesus' opening gambit creates tension. Look at, we're in verse uh, 40. Simon, Jesus answering said to him, and Simon, I didn't say anything. Uh, Yes, you did. Simon, I have something to say to you. There's his opening gambit. He moves his pawn to whatever square three. I don't, again, that's, you know, you're used to me admitting my ignorance, aren't you? Yeah. Okay, so I I don't really, uh, so he makes this opening gambit, and now the uh, second move is Simon's. Confident, he amiably recognizes Jesus as a teacher and says, Say it, teach, <laughs> say it, teacher. That's his response to the opening. Um, now, we'll, we'll, it, it's, whether or not he'll accept the teacher's teaching is up in the air, but then Jesus makes a counter move. Here's his next move he tells a story. A certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii. By the way, that's, you know, a denarii is a day's pay, a day's wage. So this would, if we had a five-day work week in those days, which I doubt they did. But anyway, it's a, working on two years, right? 500 denarii, the other owed 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now, which of them will love him more? So Jesus tells the story He doesn't immediately, I mean, he doesn't just kind of, Simon, I know what you're thinking, and jump on him and condemn him for that. He tells him a story, 
He wishes to lead him to consider on his own. So he uses a story, a parable. There's a lesson for Jesus, from Jesus for us as we share with one another. He, uh, rather than a direct rebuke, he tells a story and then he asks a question. More often than not, instead of responding to someone who has said something sinful, who has said something dumb, who has said something to him that he wants to correct, more often than not, he'll ask him a question rather than immediately teach them. So he, he, that's what he does here. He tells, tells this parable, it's easier to see change if Simon can see his own sinfulness rather than having it pointed out by someone else. So the parable of the two debtors, one owes ten times more than the other, both are in the same place, neither one can pay could end up in debtor's prison. They could end up being slaves in some households, household, yet both have their debts canceled. I'm not sure why ESV translates it that way. It's the, it's the verb of grace. They both are graced by the bank, by the money lender, by the financial guy. Their both debts are canceled by the banker. Different amounts, but they're both canceled. And so the punchline or the uh, sting in the tail, which one will love him more? We can say which one would be more grateful, but gratitude, thanksgiving is not quite what love is. Love is more than being grateful. It's more than a simple thank you. It's acknowledging the one's debt and forgiveness is received Acknowledging one's debt, forgiveness is received, publicly give a good report of the benefactor. Send your friends to that bank. And so the penny is beginning to drop. Look at Simon's answer, verse 43. Simon answered, the one I suppose for whom he canceled the larger debt. He, he gets it. So he doesn't say, just say, well, the one, he says, nah, I reckon the one who was forgiven the most. And Jesus commends him, you've judged rightly, Simon. Is that not a general principle that Jesus is teaching here? One who is forgiven more is likely to show greater love. Uh, but what Luke is setting this resentful Pharisee who is uh, trying to keep calm, trying to keep poised, Jesus is setting him against up or in contrast with this weeping woman with her hair hanging down. She's probably looking a mess in her unrestrained gratitude and devotion. So the problem is not really figuring out um, the point of the Jesus parable, the problem is applying Jesus parable. Can or will Simon uh, accept the concept of grace? 
And not only grace to this woman, will Simon accept the fact that he needs grace? Will he apply the parable to his life? And so Jesus, in his application, Simon, I know you think she's a greater sinner. She's got 500, you've only got 50. But you're both on the same level before God. She understands it, Simon. You don't get it. Uh, she cries. She's washing her hair. She's anoint, washing uh, with her hair. She anoints, you've done none of these. Those forgiven the most love the most. Some of the biggest sinners have been become some of the greatest saints in, the, in church history. You know, Augustine, a profligate man. I mean, he was a sinner by his own admission. One of the greatest theologians, right, of the fourth to the, at least up until, uh, well, for centuries. At 31, he took up and read Romans 13, because he heard little kids saying, take up and read. He said he was muddled, his life was muddled, had muddled the stream of friendship with the filth of lewdness. As he got to the end of Romans 13, I'll just read a couple of verses. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. He said it was at the end as if the light of eternal, uh, light of eternal life poured into my heart. All darkness of doubt vanished away. A great sinner. John Newton, a young man, signed up, ended up being a slave trader. The next thing he knew, he was a slave himself. Living a life of sin. The Lord came from on high and delivered me out of the deep waters, he said. And then, of course, we have Amazing Grace and a whole host of other hymns. He says, my memory is almost gone at the end of his life, but I remember two things. I'm a great sinner, and Christ is a great Savior. That's how much more do you need to know before God? God is a God of grace. Through Christ or in Christ, Simon needs to learn that, so Jesus sets out to teach him. And that's, that's why some people have so little love for Christ. That's why they demonstrate so little love for Christ. They've never really seen or faced up to their own great sin. Never seen how great a sinner they are. We have to be brought to awareness of who we are before God. And so the interrupter, there's been an interruption by an uninvited guest. Jesus affirms her coming in, and now she's blessed, beginning in verse 44. And Jesus just rehearses 
to Simon what she did that he should have done. Not vindictive, not vindictive. He's just trying to crack the armor of Simon's self-righteousness that hides his need and precludes the proper response. The welcoming kiss, she's doing it. The oil to refresh the face and feet, she's doing it. The washing perfume his feet, she's doing it, Simon. And then 47, what Jesus affirmed. Therefore I tell you, her sins which are many are forgiven. For she loved much. He who is forgiven little loves little. Jesus declares her forgiven. Implication, Simon, you need to be forgiven. He declares this publicly for the sake of all. Ma'am, you're the one whose sins are forgiven. Simon, you are not. In verse 49 those who were watching the chess game, then those who were at table with him began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sin? In 521, the scribes and Pharisees began to question when Jesus says, man, your sins are forgiven, they begin to question, who is this who speaks blasphemies? Now as they're getting a a picture there's a difference when he said your sins are forgiven in five they charged him with blasphemy the crowd here who has watched all of this now just say who is this who even forgives sin that's their only question acknowledging the fact that he has forgiven sin acknowledging the fact that they know God is the only one and so they are acknowledging the fact that Jesus is God I mean, that's dramatic. The notion of who Jesus is is becoming clearer and clearer with all the dramatic, dramatic things that are happening. People are being transformed, raised, demons are exercised and healed. And then verse 50, his blessing to her. He said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Again, not faith She's saved by faith, right? No one's ever saved apart from by faith. It wasn't what she did. Her prior faith was demonstrated by what she did for Jesus here at this dinner party. There's a result of Jesus' forgiveness. Forgiven by her... Were she forgiven by her gestures... Was that repentance? If so, she could have something to boast about. She could leave and boast about, look, I, I, I cried a lot. I wiped, her, wiped Jesus' feet. I anointed his head with oil and his feet with oil. I took care of him, and he saved me because of that. You know, uh, I hope none of you believe that. Uh, if you believe that you can be good enough and do the right things for God to save you, you need to get first a clear understanding of God. 
And our perfect, righteous, holy God requires, if you want to be made right with Him, He requires perfection. Uh, You are lost. There's nothing you can do to win His favor. Nothing you can do to win His favor. It's by grace and grace alone, through faith that God will give if you call out upon or call upon his name. Go in peace. Not the absence of strife. She'll face much. She has a reputation. But the presence of Jesus going with her. Well, the first three verses of chapter 8 list three other ladies for us. Where would we be without the ladies of faith? Where would this church be without the ladies? These ladies, if we tie all the ladies together, Mary Magdalene, Mary, Mary, <laughs> Joanna, uh, Salome, uh, if, if we were to bring all those together, we see them here in chapter 8 in the middle of Jesus' ministry. They'll be the ones who are with him at the in the garden, near the garden, and at the cross, they're at the foot of the cross. They're the ones that the angel uh, uh, reveals to. Mary Magdalene is the one that Jesus first appears to. They're the ones who go tell the disciples, these ladies. If we hope to win the world for Christ, which we just hope to win the world one at a time, right? Right? It will require passion like these ladies that we've seen today. Like John Newton. Who influenced Wilberforce. Who influenced the demise of slavery in England. John Bunyan. He was a repairman for pots and pans. Leaning up against a wall. Heard four ladies talking about the glories of Jesus Christ. He couldn't get it out of his head. He was gloriously saved because of those ladies. These ladies couldn't preach. They probably never taught a class. But they were passionate about their faith. And this woman didn't care what the pharisaical people at the dinner party thought of her. She was going to adore her Christ. And Bunyan was so impressed by their enthusiasm, he couldn't shake. Are you an enthusiastic Christian? Do you uh, adorn, do you put on the doctrine of Christ and the world sees you and now you have an opportunity to make a difference? Yes, this church can make a difference, but only as the sum total of the individuals. I thought about that. Uh, you may have heard the story of the lady who went to the prayer breakfast this, this week and sort of bragged that her living, she's a Christian, been converted supposedly four years ago, bragged about her fiancé. She was sorry she was late to the prayer breakfast because her fiancé wanted to stay uh, in bed that morning a little bit longer 
Hey, listen, if you're living like that, don't tell anybody you're a Christian. All right? Don't bring reproach upon the name of Christ by misportraying the gospel with your life. Yes, Yes, we're not perfect. But don't make light of your sin. Don't ignore it. Don't don't let it go. One of the TV commentators said to her, good for you. Pursue holiness to the glory of God because you can as a believer. The world might see that Christ is their hope. And you can share with them they need Christ whether they like him or not. And if you're not a Christian, don't be like Simon. You know, everybody else is bad. Compare yourself to your neighbor. Compare yourself to the person at work. Compare yourself at school to others and you're not so bad. But guess what? They may be 500 sinners and you're only a 50 sinner, but you're on the same ground before God as they are. Trust the Lord Jesus. He alone can save you. Father, we thank you for this message. We, I pray, Lord, that the truths would be evident and you, Father, would uh, remove any error. Bless your people. Bless your people, Father. And I pray that you would save those, Lord, who are concerned as they cry out to you and those who have no sense of their need that you would show them Christ and then you would show them themselves and they might run to Christ in whose name we pray. Amen. Let's stand and we'll be dismissed with Colossians 3.15. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts to which indeed you were called in one body and be thankful. Catherine and Carl They made it for a month. No reports. We are very thankful to God for their testimony a month ago. And come by and uh, welcome them into the body of providence. You're dismissed.